Well, hello. Sorry, I drank water as I was walking up and I totally choked on it. <clears throat> I'm getting choked up already. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, we're, it's gonna be a big day. We're kicking off a brand new series on the book of James. Also wanna welcome our Seacoast family that may be joining us from another campus like Somerville or North Charleston. Glad you are along for the ride as well. So as we kick off this brand new series, I wanna tell a short story that I think might help set us up well, okay? Is that all right? If I can get through it. So <clears throat> a long time ago, there was this African king and he had a friend who was also his servant. And this servant was annoyingly positive. I mean, positive all the time. Like, do you ever know, you ever know anyone like that? Just relentlessly positive. Those people drive me crazy. Because I cannot match their enthusiasm or positivity. But no matter what happened, this servant friend of the king would always have the same response. He would say, this is good. This is good. Something great would happen. This is good. Something terrible would happen, this is good. Didn't matter what it was, when it happened, it was always, this is good. So the king was out hunting with his servant friend one day, and he found something he wanted to shoot. And so he took the gun from the servant that the servant had loaded, and he aimed at his target, and he pulled the trigger. And the gun misfired, and it blew the king's thumb off his hand. And he ripped around and looked at the servant and said, what in the world? And the servant looked at the king and said, this is good. And the king said, this is not good. I just blew my thumb off, this is not good. He was so angry that he had the servant thrown in prison. And about a year later, the king was out hunting again, this time without his servant. And as he was hunting, he came across this tribe of cannibals and they captured him. And they took the king back to their village. And as they were preparing to eat him, they noticed that the king only had one thumb. Now this group of cannibals was really superstitious and they only ate things that were completely whole. So they let the king go. They sent him off. And he went straight back to his palace. Went straight to the tower where he had locked up his servant and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I had you locked up all this time. Please forgive me. And the servant looked at the king and said, this is good. And the king said, what is wrong with you? Is, I just had you locked up for a year. You've been in prison for the past year. How can you possibly say this is good? And the servant said to the king, because if I had, been with, if I had not been here, I'd have been with you. <laughs> I didn't write the joke. If you don't like it, not my fault. So James has a similar kind of positivity in the book that he writes. But before we jump into the text, let's talk about the author for a second. James was a brother of Jesus, not a brother like in the, hey, Christian brother. He was the actual, one of the actual brothers of Jesus. The book was written at about 62 to 69, which would have put it around 30 years after Jesus died. Now the book is a letter that's written to Jewish Christians who were under heavy persecution from Rome at the time. And because of this, these Christians had to flee their homelands to essentially hide out among the Gentile nations or non-Jewish nations. 
Some of your Bibles might say that James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, which just means that these people had been dispersed from their homelands. They weren't where they wanted to be, weren't where they were supposed to be. So that's who James is writing to. But who's James? Who is this guy James? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Paul all tell us that James was Jesus' brother. Matthew says it this way. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? And isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas? Different Judas, by the way. And there are also multiple James in the New Testament, but most of the evidence points to this James, the writer of this book, as the one who's related to Jesus. So what must it have been like to be one of the brothers of Jesus? How many of you in the room have siblings? How many of you had a sibling growing up, yeah? You know it can be good to have siblings in the house, right? You've always got somebody to blame something on when things get sideways. It's not a bad thing. So imagine though, if one of your brothers is Jesus, I don't know if it still works. Like, how, could that, how would that have gone? Who left the dishes in the sink? Jesus did it, Mom. Ah, did he? <laughs> Who left the seat up? Jesus did it. Jesus is always leaving the seat up. Did he really do that? I just don't know if it works the same way when Jesus lives in your house. It couldn't have been easy to have Jesus as your brother. And what's interesting about James that we learn from the book of John is that James did not believe in Jesus. James wasn't a Christian. During the time of Jesus' ministry, James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. John says it this way in his gospel. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now they weren't telling Jesus to reveal himself through signs and wonders for the benefit of the world. They needed to see it for themselves because they had serious doubts about whether or not he was indeed the promised Messiah. What they failed to understand though was this, Jesus at no point was ever very interested in establishing his fame as a leader. He was only ever interested in establishing our freedom as the savior. That's all he was interested in. This is something that James would later realize, and that's why we now have today the book of James. It was a letter he wrote made up of 108 verses over five chapters. And we're gonna look at this series until we finish. We don't know when that'll be, but we'll make our way through it together. 108 verses, five chapters, 54 of them, exactly half are imperatives or commands. James was a pretty direct guy. And he doesn't waste any time getting down to it. His goal was to write a letter that would help displaced Christians live into the freedom that Jesus died to bring them. 
So before we jump into the text, why don't we take just a quick second and pray. Father, we thank you that your word is what you say it is. It's a light before our feet. We thank you that the unfolding of your word gives light to our minds. And so we pray that you would bring that today. Help us to see what we need to see about ourselves or about you, that we might live into that same freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's how he starts his letter. Verse one says, James, it's like he's writing his name at the top of the paper, right? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if we're gonna talk about this part of the book of James, then we have to deal with this idea of trials or challenges, right? Trials are something we've all experienced. Like it or not, we've all experienced them. In fact, here in the low country, we have a special kind of trials. We have a six-month season that is filled with potential trials. We call it hurricane season, right? Runs from June 1 to the end of November. And it's a time of year when we lose our ever-loving minds whenever a storm is announced. You know it's true. We rush out to buy gas in case we're evacuated. We rush out to find plywood to protect against the wind. We rush out to find sandbags to protect against the water. We rush to the grocery store and buy everything that will fit into a shopping cart. And then we go home and because we're on edge, we stress eat our way through all the food before the storm ever gets here. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. Well, a friend of mine was telling me that he, during a time when a sto- it looked like a pretty serious storm was coming, he decided to go to Walmart to stock up on supplies for his family. And he said he, he finally found a parking place all the way in the back of the parking lot, made his way to the front of the store, and he said it was just chaos. Lines out the door and around the corner and down the sidewalk. People coming out with two and three shopping carts apiece, pushing one and pulling the other, overflowing with groceries. But then he did notice this one guy who was just casually making his way out of the store, not a care in the world. He had one shopping cart, and it was filled with several cases of beer and about 200 Slim Jims. (laughs) He was ready. He was ready for whatever came. Some of you are like, we're doing that next time. We're trying that. That's a great idea. But we all have experienced trials, right? In fact, a large percentage of us in here at the campuses might say that we're facing some sort of trial right now. Some sort of trial right now. Maybe you're facing a trial that's related to family. Or maybe you're facing a trial that's related to another relationship. Maybe you're facing a trial that has to do with work or finances or health. It could be any number of things. It could be lots of those things all at the same time. You may have heard it said that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Anyone ever heard that? That was the famous theologian Kelly Clarkson who said that. (laughs) Actually, she ripped it off from Frederick Nietzsche. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But then Conan O'Brien expanded on the thought and said, yes, but let's not forget that it almost kills you. 
Trials are not fun. They're not something we would choose if we had the option. But that brings us to the first point that James wants to make in his letter. And that's this, that trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Let's look at what the text says. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice he uses the word when, not if, but when you face trials of many kinds. And that's because James knows trials will come. In fact, to the people that he's writing to, trials have already come. They've been displaced from their homes. So why? That's the question we go to, right? When we find ourselves in trials, we go to the question, why? Why me, God? Why now? Why this? Why do we have to face trials? I think you can find the answer in the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis, God said, let's make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. God's design was for us to rule over all that he created. That we would rule according to what he wants, to his ways, not according to our own. But here's the reality. We have not ruled all that well. We've kind of made a mess of things, haven't we? C.S. Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. God cannot give us happiness and peace outside of himself because it is not there. We have not ruled well because in many ways we have ruled from self-interest, from self-promotion or self-protection. It falls short of what God had in mind for us, and the Bible calls that sin. And the brokenness that entered the world through sin means that life is now filled with trials. And some trials just feel absolutely senseless, don't they? Like what Kobe Bryant's family must be going through right now. It it must just feel absolutely inexplainable what they're going through. Some of us have experienced horrible things like that in life, haven't we? Things that were done to us that we just didn't deserve. Or things that happened to us that we simply can't explain. And I don't think you can read the pages of scripture without seeing how that grieves God's heart. But I also believe that the scripture forces us to acknowledge that while it's difficult to understand our pain sometimes... God is capable of bringing good out of it. Maybe you came to church today hoping to be inspired and encouraged and you're sitting there thinking, he's not doing it. He's doing it wrong. (laughs) I don't feel either of those things right now. And you need me to be a little more positive. Well, I can be more positive about the fact that we will face trials in this life. It's just a part of life that we're gonna experience here. But I think that's where the good news begins, according to James. Because while trials are inevitable, I think that James is setting us up to learn that trials also have purpose. In fact, James believes so strongly in this that he says, consider it pure joy 
my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, it kind of forces us to ask the deep doctrinal question, what is wrong with this guy? Like, I don't have to be happy about the trials I'm facing, James. I don't have to consider it joyful. What's wrong with him? Why would he say that? I believe it's because of something he saw. Something he experienced. Something that changed his perspective completely on trials. Remember, James watched his brother Jesus be brutally murdered by a mob. He watched his mother and father grieve the loss of their son. And James himself had to grieve that loss. James understood trials, he gets it. So what changed his perspective? Well, Paul gives us a clue in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Talking about Jesus after his resurrection, Paul says this, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive. And then come six words that I think changed everything for James. Take a look. Then he was seen by James. If you're looking for an idea of where life changed for James, this is it. You found it. In a moment, James saw his pain differently. He saw trials differently because he knew he could see it right in front of him that God had brought purpose out of his trials. When Jesus appeared to him, James understood how God could bring something immeasurably good out of something so tragically painful. For James, this is where everything changed. Remember, James was a man who was entrenched in Jewish culture. And he had a very good understanding. He would have had a clear understanding of their sacrificial system, how important that was, how they used sacrifices to deal with their sin before God. And when he saw his brother alive before him, something clicked. That would have been the moment that he stepped back and realized, you, you were the sacrifice that all of our other sacrifices were pointing to. You were the sacrifice that set me free. It was the trial of Jesus' death that would become the basis for our forgiveness and redemption with God. This is what God does with pain. This is what he does in trials. Whether we caused it or someone else caused it, God is able to take our trials and bring purpose out of them. He is able to use them to produce something good. It is encouraging to know that our trials have purpose. But what about the trials that we don't bring on ourselves? Any of you had somebody bring a trial on you? You didn't choose, you didn't want? but some choices others made brought some trial to your life. 
What about the tragic out of nowhere trials that we encounter? Well, James addresses those too. But he does it with a language that might not be obvious to us right away. Remember, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not just the kind we create for ourselves, but also the kind that others might create for us. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He reminds us here that trials have purpose because they produce something, and he's about to tell us what they produce. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Honestly, as I was studying and preparing for this message, I got stuck right there. I, don't, I mean like for days I got stuck. And I, not just this passage, not just that verse, but that part of the verse. Have you ever read something and right away you're like, where have I seen that? Where have I heard that? You just can't get it out of your head. And I kept thinking and thinking and praying like, God, there's something here. Started looking at some other passages and I realized, oh my gosh, he did this on purpose. He used those words on purpose. James was a Jewish man and he would have known that culture very, very well. And those last few words, not lacking anything, they were not written casually. They were used on purpose. For a Jewish person, they were pregnant with meaning. We see that phrase, lacking nothing, about a dozen times in the Old Testament, about a half dozen times in the New. For the Jewish person, the idea of lacking something was very important because the history of the Jews is littered with seasons where they felt like they did lack something. There were times when they felt like they lacked a land to call their own. There were times when they felt like they lacked a temple where they could worship. There were times when they believed they lacked an identity as a nation. These were really hard times for the Jewish people. These were times of great trial. And so the idea of not lacking anything for the Jewish person felt like a promised land because it meant they would finally be who they were supposed to be. It meant they would finally be whole. I could read you some of the parallel passages from the Old Testament, but the one that you're gonna recognize the most is Psalm 23, which has become one of the most treasured of all the Psalms, hasn't it? And while I could read that for you, I thought it might be good for you to hear it in a different way. When our son Matthew was about four or five years old, he memorized the 23rd Psalm as part of a school project. And he was so excited that he had done it. And so he wanted to hear himself saying it. So I put him in my lap, we got in front of the computer, and we recorded him saying it. It's just an audio recording and it's kind of old, but I thought it would be good for you to hear the 23rd Psalm from the innocence of a child. So let's listen together. The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Good job. I want to hear that. He gives a little self-applause there at the end. <laughs> He's 22 now. He sounds a little different. James would have known this psalm well. He would have prayed it and sung it out loud on the regular. And I wonder if it didn't become a framework for him for what he would later write. That even though we walk through a valley of shadows, that it can at times feel like death over us, God is still with us, comforting us, guiding us, and preparing a table for us, even as our enemies look on. Trials are inevitable, but they are not without purpose. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, fear not, for I have overcome this world. We may not want it to be true, but I think James is steering us towards the reality that not only are trials inevitable, and they do have purpose, and because they have purpose, trials also are a gift. Trials can be a gift. You see, the word James uses for trial here is a Greek word that we see over 20 times in the New Testament. He's not introducing a new idea, but he is reminding us of a really important one. The word itself means to test or prove through adversity. Now, adversity is not something many of us would choose if given the option. Adversity is not always fun, but it usually does produce something in us. And sometimes, most times, it produces something good. And it's that potential of producing something in us that make trials a gift. Let me frame it for you this way. Our daughter, Emma, She'll graduate uh, from high school this year and go on to college, and she wants to study education. Loves kids, wants to be a teacher. By the way, she applied to five schools, had heard from four, gotten into all four of them. One of them was South Carolina, which is where I graduated from, Dana graduated from, so we were rooting for that one just a little bit. But we were also rooting for College of Charleston because it was local. We were waiting on Clemson. We thought we had it all figured out and then Clemson responded today and said she got in. Clemson has been messing up my life for like decades now. <laughs> I tell you, I just don't get it. So she wants to study education, be a teacher. And teachers don't have it easy, do they? My mother was an educator all of her life and I remember even as a child, I could tell the work was long, it was hard and it was often unappreciated. Teachers have a tough gig If you're an educator in any capacity, I think this is worth doing. Whether you're here or at the campuses, if you're an educator 
now or you were or you were an administrator in a school, would you just stand so that we can say thank you? We appreciate what you guys do. It's not easy work. And often you aren't thanked as you should be. So hear your church family saying thank you for what you do. Teachers have a tough job. Helping people learn is not always easy. Let me give you an example. Just take a look at some of these answers to test questions from children, and you'll get the idea. So there's a girl named Hope. She was asked to answer a question about quadrilaterals. She was asked to name different quadrilaterals like square or rectangle or parallelogram. So the question was, name the quadrilaterals. And this is what Hope did. She gave them names like Bob and Sam <laughs> and Kate. I mean, she answered the question. Should be more specific. <laughs> what about this one? Caleb. Caleb was asked to answer some general question about like the days of the week and the months of the year. And this is what Caleb did with it. How many days in a week? Seven. Months in a year? Twelve. Is this number odd or even? Even. How do you know? Because I'm smart. <laughs> He's confident. This is what teachers do for us. They help build our confidence, right? Or Joey. Now, Joey, he really enjoys math, and he wanted to thank his teacher for the time that she took to teach him math. So here's the question Joey answered. It said, I like Miss Edwards. She is my math teacher. She's my teacher. I like it when she does meth with us. <laughs> oh, Joey. Joey needs a spelling class. <laughs> or Miss Edwards needs a new job. How about Nikki? Nikki was given a test on the solar system. She was asked a question about why does Saturn have a ring? And so here's what she said, because God liked it, so he put a ring on it. <laughs> Answer the question. The teacher said, Saturn is not a single lady. Or how about Billy? Billy also likes math. So Billy was asked to find the value of X. The question was, find X. Billy said, here it is. <laughs> School is easy. School is so easy. Here's, here's one last one for you, Frankie. Frankie was asked a question about how he earns money at home. And Frankie said, I don't, because I'm a freeloader. Frankie's that guy who'll be living in mom and dad's basement much later in life. <laughs> Even if you're not a teacher, we can all remember being in school, right? Teachers have the job of preparing students to pass tests they didn't want to take in the first place. Now, teachers don't give us tests because they're hateful people. They give us tests for one reason, for the sole purpose of promoting their students. They give us tests because they're trying to help us get to the next level. And a good teacher will never give you a test that they haven't taught you the material for first. But how many of you know that passing any test is largely dependent upon the student? We have to become willing, we have to choose to learn what needs to be learned in order to pass the test. As we talk about it, you might be noticing 
that this is not altogether different from what we experience in our faith. God wants to prepare us for trials that we may not want to face in the first place. And while he is a really good teacher, we must be willing to learn so that we can grow and move forward from the trial. If we know that trials are inevitable, we can see from this that growth is not inevitable. Growth is a choice. Trials in this life are inevitable, but growth is always gonna be a choice. And some of you might say, can I not just have a life without trials? Can I sign up for that? Where is that? I wanna sign up for that. Now we know the answer, right? That's what we get to experience in heaven. Not here. Here on earth, we will have some challenges. But even if you could have a life like that, I'm not sure you'd want to because it would limit your opportunities to grow and move forward through the trials that you would face. And even if you were comfortable with that idea of not facing any trials, I'm not sure the people around you would be. Imagine if when Dana and I got married 25 years ago that we walked out of the the church where we got married and we high-fived each other. I was like, that was awesome. This is gonna be amazing. But hey, I just need to let you know that this is as good as it's gonna get. I don't plan to grow or change anymore from here. I'm never gonna be any better at loving you than I am today. Some of you are like, I said that in my wedding vows. What's wrong with that? (laughs) We have a good marriage today because we're both committed to growing. And a lot of that growth has come through trials and challenges. Here's the simple thing. The simple thing is that the purpose God almost always brings out of all of our trials is the same. And that is that he wants to use our pain that we create or others create to help us learn to trust him more. When I was seven years old, I was playing on some monkey bars at a family picnic. And I don't know if you hang around playgrounds anymore, but hopefully you have kids if you hang around playgrounds. If you don't, that's weird, don't do that. (laughs) But if you go to playgrounds, you probably don't notice that there aren't monkey bars really anymore. And that's because insurance companies have figured out that monkey bars are the leading cause of all playground-related accidents. So old school playgrounds, you might find some monkey bars. These new ones, not so much. So you probably know where this is going. I was swinging on the monkey bars at this family picnic, seven years old. My feet get up too high, I lose my grip, and I start falling backwards like this. And I catch myself with my arm, but I broke my elbow. And it wasn't one of those simple breaks. It was one of those complicated ones that required a long surgery to repair. You know the kind? It was the kind that everyone heard and immediately looked to see what happened. Because when they looked, or when they heard it, this is the sound they heard. It was clear what had happened. No doubt in their minds whether something had broke. They just didn't know how broken I was. And you know how it goes when a young child gets hurt, right? All the adults start playing it real cool, real quick. Like they look at each other like, it's okay, it's okay. Look at you like, you're okay, you're gonna be okay, even though they know I'm not. Because they know if they freak out, you'll freak out, right? So they're all like, you're okay, you're okay, until I get up, and my arm is dangling in the wrong direction. And then they all break character at the same time. (laughs) 
They're like, oh! Plates go flying, cups go flying. There are people over here going, oh! And the kids see it, they pick up on it, so now they start screaming and running away from me like a broken elbow is contagious. It was a whole big scene. So not long thereafter, I was in surgery. Now, I'd never been in surgery, so I was pretty nervous about what was gonna happen. There were doctors and nurses, a bunch of them, all around with, in scrubs with their faces covered. There were tables full of sharp tools and saws, and there was this guy beside me ready to stab me with something that he said would make me feel better. <laughs> By that guy. And in the midst of all these people I didn't know whose faces were mysteriously covered, and all these tables full of sharp objects, and this clown beside me ready to stab me, I was okay. I was okay. Because you see, what I haven't told you is this, that on the way to surgery, I had a million questions for my father. Some of them he answered. Some of them he didn't. But he did assure me that this trial, no matter how scary, was going to lead to my healing. That on the other side of this trial, I was not going to be broken in the same way. The trial of surgery was going to start the process of healing in my life. You may have heard it said that God loves you just the way you are. That's true, he does. He loves all of us just the way we are, even when we're hurting and broken, but he loves us too much to leave us broken. And it's often through trials that God begins the work of restoring us. And even though the trial can be scary or painful, they're never without purpose. The greater purpose that James describes so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Our pain can either be a jail that imprisons us or it can be a school that empowers us. The difference is often in our perspective. Will we let that trial crush us or will we rejoice because we know that God is going to use it to make us whole again. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to say it out loud, but we thank you for trials. We're not saying we want more of them, but we do thank you for the ones that we've had, and we thank you for the ones that we might be facing now. And Jesus, we pray that as we walk through those seasons, you would help us to have the kind of perspective that James describes here, that we would consider it all joy because we know you're up to something. In Jesus' name, amen.